Good evening, listeners. It's September 16th, and you're tuned into 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It is currently just after 7 p.m., and on a Sunday, that can mean only one thing. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Lillian Padgett-Cobb. And I'm Kristen Finch. At Oregon State University, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you are a graduate student at OSU, or you're just interested in learning more about all research and activities at Oregon State University and the awesome things that graduate students do, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration, where you can find out all of our upcoming guests, links to our Twitter and Facebook pages, and how to sign up for the show. Inspiration dissemination is recorded live, and should they occur, any opinions expressed on the show are those of the hosts and their guests and do not necessarily represent Oregon State University or this station. Tonight, we are joined by Liz Jonk from the Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies program in the College of Liberal Arts. Hey, Liz, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So your research falls within the field of MAD studies. And can you tell us more about what that encompasses and what it is that you do? Sure. Um, so first of all, I think I should clarify that by MAD, I don't mean angry, or at least I don't just mean angry. <laughs> um, by MAD, I mean crazy, insane, unwell, disturbed, psychotic, manic, depressive, bipolar, borderline, mentally disabled, ADHD, autism, spectrum disorder, and a host of other things that people position themselves as or identify with. Um, and MAD studies is a field of studies that interrogates concepts of normalcy, especially around the mind, or I like to say the body mind after uh, many disability and MAD studies scholars, they refer to the body mind as like a whole entity. You can't separate the mind from the body. And MAD studies in particular thinks about critiques concepts of wellness um, and sanity and logic or reason. Um, and I would add to that that uh, many MAD people sort of consider MAD studies the academic arm of the MAD Pride movement, which is a movement that organizes MAD people of all kinds against things like forced psychiatric incarceration or institutionalization, forced medication, um, and the general stigma around being mad or being pathologized as such. Okay. So, so one thing I'm curious about is um, your research, you're looking at a specific focus within MAD studies, uh, more of the historical um, placing MAD studies within a specific context. Yeah, so I definitely would not refer to myself as a historian. I just want to clarify that in case the history kids are getting nervous already. <laughs> um, but I think it's fair to say that I do look at the stories of mad people uh, across space-time. So primarily, and I should position myself here, I am a white Euro settler, um, Gender queer, mad person. I'm a grad student. That comes with some kind of economic entitlement, so to speak. Um, so positioning myself within that space time, I'm mostly looking at scholars and artists and activists who are working on this continent. And 
Um, the ones I'm most interested in are those who are disrupting narratives that tend to think of madness and psychology, psychology and psychiatry, or what I say is the psi sciences after mad study scholars, um, who, yeah, they're disrupting these narratives that imagine those things to be coming out of primarily Eurocentric and Amerocentric um, imagination. So like, what does the white settler Western mind imagine wellness to be, imagine madness to be, how is it treated across time? And so I'll just name drop Michel Foucault here because he's really famous for his analysis of like a historical analysis of madness um, and really just challenging scholars like Foucault who, yes, while they have done some really important methodological work, they were looking at an extremely limited populace and then trying to generalize that to everyone across genders, across disabilities, across nationalities and sexualities and so forth. Okay. So would you say that that uh, kind of historical tradition of kind of that Foucault kind of set up uh, is is really um, ignoring or trying to trying to put uh, folks into groups, but ignoring uh, many other identities that um, that are now becoming um, more known or more discussed in academia? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I think it's the tendency of Western academia to ignore or even pretend that whole groups of people don't exist. <laughs> um, so it's both an intentional and unintentional marginalization of those people. And um, the scholars that particularly draw my attention often are coming out of those multiply marginalized positions and pushing back against these taken for granted narratives. Um, I think an example of this is like, you know, when we see medications for antidepressants advertised uh, on TV, it's often like a middle-aged, apparently cis heterosexual white woman in the commercial who's looking really glum and apparently can't play with her kids or make them sandwiches for lunch or what have you. And so that's, I think that's one example of how proliferate certain stereotypes are about madnesses and disabilities that attach them to identities that are more readily accepted and studied, for one thing, um, by the sci sciences and just within the mainstream and sane stream in general. And so the scholars that I'm talking about, uh, I'll name drop Gloria Anzaldúa because I'm like a Gloria Anzaldúa fan kid. <laughs> and um, she's really disrupting what it means to like talk about whiteness for one thing, coming from a mixed race and border crossing identity. She often positions herself as having a liminal or almost ambiguous identity in terms of race and nationality and language and so forth. And th those kinds of scholars get us to reorient the I guess so-called history or even the so-called origin stories of the sci sciences and madness like where does madness come from supposedly psychology has some answers for that um, but the stories that Anzal Dua is, ta uh, is talking about are much older than the western conception of the sci sciences if that makes sense 
So there's this this history that extends beyond really the what's been explored by the status quo academic establishment. Um, so for Gloria Anzaldúel, you were talking about um, her story that her, I guess her perspective extends back much further. Yeah, so um, she's considered like a preeminent Chicana feminist, but she is also working from indigenous epistemologies and cosmologies that um, I don't want to say they refute the existence of madness per se, but they definitely position it as something completely other than the sort of disturbance or even in some cases abomination that the psi sciences imagine madness and mental illness and so forth to be like the mentally ill or crazy person is defective and in need of cure within a medical model that the psi sciences promote but in many indigenous traditions not just the one that Anzaldúa was working from uh, that's very much not the case um, not to like mystify crazy people per se but um, I just think it gets us to sort of blow those models wide open and think of the body-mind as something completely different than the one that often has these like overlapping categorical stereotypes put on them. Um, and again, that like totally erases whole body-minds of people of color, of queer people. Yeah. So this what you mentioned about going back to the stereotypical antidepressant commercial, in a sense, um, where there's an idea of the, the, the model of what a depressed person might look like. And when we spoke for um, leading up to this interview, you had mentioned that um, there are these shifting um, ideas of what constitutes um, illness or wellness through time depending upon sort of the social and cultural climate. Um, and that, on that point, maybe yeah. depending on who is in power, I think, yeah. Lily, you're trying to get to is yeah, definitely. Who, is, who is making the diagnosis and what is, right. how is that serving them? Can you talk a little bit more about mm, that? Yeah, so, um, I mean, overwhelmingly until super recently in, at least on these stolen lands and we can also talk about what I mean by stolen lands. Um, definitely, uh, you know, cis masculine white settlers dominate the psi sciences and the psi industrial complex that meets out diagnoses and, of course, doles out medications and determines who is so dangerous to themselves or others, quote unquote, that they need to be locked away um, or their autonomy and agency taken away. And absolutely, the, those function along r lines of race and uh, socioeconomic position and, um, you know, educational background, disability status, all of these different things, like working in tandem or com even compounding each other in some cases. Um, I think a really famous historical example of this was when um, schizophrenia first started to like gain traction with like DSM fans, sci scientists, I should say, 
um, white women, white cis women of of a certain class that could afford to go to such doctors, uh, they tended to be diagnosed with schizophrenia more than any other group. And then over time that shifted where with the so-called turmoil of the civil rights movement and black power and the Black Panther Party and American Indian movement and um, different racialized groups um, trying to claim their rights and um, and demonstrate their autonomy and agency as citizens um, in a settler state that shifted so that black men actually tended to be much more diagnosed than any other group to the extent that, like, for example, you can look up a book called uh, The Protest Psychosis, which refers to the way that black men were overdiagnosed with schizophrenia um, in a particular time frame. It was politically expedient for sci scientists to target black men with supposed mental disorders to, like, take them off the playing board um, when you are put away in a psychiatric institution, and I apologize there's not a trigger warning for this, um, you lose a lot of rights. So that's... So it was kind of a way to silence those voices? Absolutely. I mean, when you call somebody crazy, and, and we do this a lot, um, this is like a really common sane stream thing to do. People casually throw around crazy, insane, stupid, and so forth, but in very targeted ways when we want to gain power over someone or discredit them, we will challenge their the soundness of their mind or the soundness of their logic by calling them or their ideas stupid or crazy. Yeah. And so uh, as a you know, person of the, a member of the dominant white culture in academia, but also a mad person, Liz, what are some of your goals for your your dissertation? Yeah, so um, I'm early in the process, so I'm still figuring that out. But certainly, I do want to continue challenging myself. Like, I've only been here a year and completed the majority of my coursework. Um, and I am finding that a lot of my ideas are, continue to shift. Uh, so, for example, my introduction, my personal introduction several years ago to what I later figured out was called mad studies, um, which, you know, we can consider that problematic, like who's calling it mad studies, who gets to decide what mad studies is and that kind of thing. Um, I was actually introduced to these concepts through Gloria Anzaldúa, who is not at all positioned by critical disability studies or feminist disability studies or MAD studies as one of them, so to speak. One of the scholars, you mean? Exactly. Like, I think a lot of especially white stream um, disability and MAD studies people are like, oh, Ansel Dua is a Chicana feminist and she does like borderlands theory and that was her thing. She wasn't talking about what we're talking about, which I totally disagree. Like, I would not have all thought to pursue something in the vein of MAD studies had I not found um, some of her really pivotal texts and started thinking of myself differently. So in a way, she also brought me to MAD pride. Like when I first read Borderlands La Frontera, um, 
I had just been, I'm outing myself here, but I just said I'm crazy, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> I had just been like given a psychiatric diagnosis, um, different from the ones I had before. And uh, I, and it was like a struggle for me to think of myself differently under this different label. I had become so comfortable thinking of myself as a depressive, like, yeah, I am a depressive. I'm super <laughs> depressed and I'm cool with that. And so to have it suddenly changed was like, whoa, this older white dude is like telling me that I'm not what I thought I was for like a couple decades now. Um, I didn't know how to reconcile myself with that until I read her book and realized that, are we allowed to swear? Probably not. No. So, <laughs> so labels are bull crap. <laughs> right. And, um, the DSM is is a fiction, um, a carefully authored and authorized fiction, and meant just many other things about identity categories and identity politics, and um, even like her reluctance to apply labels to herself was like really compelling to me as someone who had adopted so many labels myself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so coming to terms with, with these labels or, or uh, kind of learning about your research before maybe you started your research, um, do you find that uh, you're putting a lot of your uh, personal uh, experiences into your research and how you're moving forward? Are you trying to stay away from that? Or uh, what, what is leading your research? Is it this exploration that was initiated by uh, Enzel Dua or are there other other um other inspirations too so that's um yeah i feel like there's a couple things in there that i think about a lot so i i it seems like there's this general terror of vulnerability around oneself as a researcher or a teacher in academia where we are super afraid to put ourselves in our work or in our teaching um, just generally, and that's even strongly discouraged. Like I've taught a couple undergraduate courses in WGSS now, and I still get a lot of science kids, like undergrad science kids who are like, I can't use the first person pronoun in my writing. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm the teacher and I'm telling you that you can, it's okay to do that. So this general discouragement of putting our lived experience into our work, um, which is very much not the case in WGSS, which is why I think I was drawn to this field in the first place. Um, and again, you can challenge like what it means to say the field. Definitely that's something that um, the faculty in WGSS and QS at Oregon State are constantly pushing us to do, challenging us to think about where those boundaries lie and who and what are we talking about when we say women, gender, and sexuality studies or queer theory. Um, and so I'm definitely taking a lot of those ideas and putting them into my research in tandem with my own lived experience. I find that I often don't write about my own experience that much because it is terrifying and it's scary to out oneself in any way. Um, not because we necessarily want to keep up appearances of um, normativity, but um, it might put some people in danger. I think that's something else to keep in mind is like not everybody is going to be super open about like, I'm a psycho, you know, that's 
not going to be safe for some people. Um, and especially where that collides with things like race and nationality mm-hmm. and so forth. Um, and in terms of thinking about trajectories of fields and around WGSS and MAD studies, um, the faculty here has also really pushed me to think about uh, what Sarah Ahmed calls citational practices. She says fi- feminist citational practices. Um, and so in terms of my citational practice, like when I think about people like Audre Lorde or Gloria Anzaldúa or um, other especially feminists of color in relation to MAD studies and disability studies, um, which is technically not canon as white stream academics are writing it, um, I'm not just trying to interrogate the quote-unquote field or raise questions. I'm also trying to figure out what my relationships are to those stories and histories, um, especially as a Euro settler moving around on stolen lands. Like, I'm from Michigan. Those are stolen lands. <laughs> I moved to Oregon. Here we are on the lands of the Kalapuya people, also stolen lands. Um, yeah, so I think it's really hard to separate the our lived experiences and the work that we do in a particular place and time from these much broader trajectories of space-time. So one thing I'm wondering is what you described about um, writing in the first person. It seems like there's a certain amount of sort of um, projecting outward your internal experience, uh, your internal, your own lived experience. Um, and is there an association with maybe a connection with uh, making, I guess, tailored recommendations um, about changes to like policy or health? And are you more situated in the unpacking of the experience or the recommendation side of things? Where do those sort of coalesce, I guess? Mm, yeah, that's a really good question, um, which is uh, like a recurring theme in WGSS classes, I find, is where what's the point where we just stop tearing things apart and start building things? And, and can they happen simultaneously? Um, and I, th- I absolutely think that that applies within MAD studies and disability studies, especially as like a WGSS trained person approaching these fields. Um, yeah, I had a thought and I lost it. Yeah, that happens. <laughs> yeah, it does. So your research isn't, uh, though, uh, explicitly at this point focused on recommendations of how to, um, recommendations for health professionals about broadening their view of what madness is necessarily, but more of an examination, or how you're envisioning now, more of an examination of the history that kind of got us here Mm. to this point of reconciling these, um, you know, more uh, academia, the academy has accepted um, certain folks to belong to the field and folks to like not necessarily belong to the field, but women and gender studies and maybe mad studies seems open to changing that lens and broadening um, the conception of the field. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Recommendations. That was the thing that yeah. I was going to say. Okay. <laughs> not, not only am I like, maybe it's just my personality that I'm personally reluctant to make, like offer advice or make recommendations, mm-hmm. but, um, especially understanding myself as being like raised within born into and raised within certain paradigms of privilege and power um, that for me often go unseen or unchallenged or I'm not fully conscious of them all the time. Um, I immediately have to take a step back and constantly reassess. And so I could make recommendations. the temptation is always there. I see sci scientists doing it all the time, uh, even broad brushing within what are hugely diverse categories that they created. So if you take, for example, um, schizophrenia or borderline personality disorder, or bipolar disorder, autism spectrum disorder, like all of these categories, these highly constructed categories that f- like flux over time, um, they contain a huge diversity of people that generally get distilled into like one or two kinds of patients that you're likely to encounter as a presumably white cis-masculine sci scientist and then how do you treat that person? And when the supposed anomaly comes along, will you, will you even recognize them? Um, or will you treat them as you would these sort of archetypal conceptions of like, this is what a person with borderline personality disorder looks like. Um, So yeah, in terms of recommendations, I think the sort of self-critical and self-reflective lens that um, queer studies and WGSS, it's, I would say is becoming more prevalent. That hasn't always been the case in these fields, Um, but that's something that's definitely really critical to my work and that I see like really strongly encouraged in things like feminist disability studies and mad studies. Um, so not, not imagining that we construct a recommendation that will like somehow magically apply to everyone. I definitely think there are like really general guidelines that seem so general that they're almost not even worth saying. Um, which I could offer a couple of my favorite ones if that <laughs> is appropriate. So um, I'm a Daniel Heath Justice fan kid as well. My cohort, if they were listening to this, would be laughing right now because I cite these questions all the time. But he poses what I see as like four incredibly poignant questions about what it means to be human as any kind of person in all our complexity. He says, how do we learn to be human? How do we behave as good relatives? How do we become good ancestors? And how do we learn to live together? And in isolation, each of those questions seems so simple. Um, But each time I read them, they, they really tear me up because I think it gets to the core of what it means to, regardless of whatever labels are forced onto someone or whatever identities we take onto ourselves, what it means for us, how we interact with each other, how we treat each other, um, where do loving compassion stand in that if we have to recognize each other's humanity? Because 
people of color, disabled people, mad people, queer people, especially where those categories intersect, are often dehumanized. They're not recognized as human, which authorizes so much violence against them. That would be my recommendation to think about those questions. <laughs> okay, and kind of on this vein, a question that I have, I think we should talk about the about your background a little bit more after this. But before we do, um, also I should remind the listeners that this is Inspiration Dissemination on KBVR Corvallis. And uh, we are broadcasting from Oregon State University campus and talking to Liz Jonk from the Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies Department here on campus. Uh, so, um, Liz... On the same vein of this recommendations, I know that we're moving away from that, but um, as a listener um, to this podcast and radio show, and now having more knowledge that this uh, MAD studies exists and this concept of a of madness not being binary and of people with people who are not. Um, I'm sorry, what was it? Uh, who, who are um, neuronormative? What was the word that you used before? People who are... Neurodivergent? Neuro, neuro, yeah, okay. So uh, this concept of people who are neurodivergent falling into like a broad a broad spectrum of, of, of different ways of mind, of different mind-body states instead of being into these uh, categories of what could be used as to... Pa- to uh, patho- pathologize or to diagnose someone with madness. So from listening to this radio show, we see there's you know this broader concept of there's just a diversity of people who fall into mad. How uh, does a listener be aware of this? Or how does a listener use this knowledge to maybe uh, participate in the, in the mad pride movement? Yeah, good question. So um, I definitely think that there's probably a lot of mad people listening to this right now who, I mean, if there were a lot of people listening (laughs) to this, then proportionally speaking, some of them would be mad and they had never thought of themselves like that. Or maybe they'd be like, I don't like that word. I'm bipolar or I'm crazy or I'm neuroqueer or... um, so just statistically speaking, I think that would be the case. Like, <laughs> we imagine crazy people as anomalies that, and there's only a, a few of us, and luckily we've been round up and medicated, and we're good to go. No, actually, mad people are all over the place. Uh, I'm not going to make the, like, you know, cliche statistical comparison to redheads or something like that. Like, how many crazy people are there <laughs> if you could visualize them like you could redheads? No. But... Even getting everybody to question, you know, where that line is, where the line is between wellness and unwellness. Um, certainly, I think a lot of people have experienced some super unwell, unwell days that maybe they were reluctant to identify as as a crazy day, as a depressive day, um, because of the stigmas attached to that concept. But getting just everybody to rethink what we mean when we're talking about wellness and unwellness and to remove the compulsion that this idea of 
what Sarah Ahmed and other, especially queer theorists, call compulsory happiness, um, as if none of us can ever demonstrate our unwellness. So uh, I think Mad Pride is often about, yeah, we are demonstrating our unwellness and we're proud of it and we're even happy about it. Wow, I'm like a happy depressive. There's a weird concept. <laughs> so, um, but there's, it sounds like there's a certain amount of just embracing yourself as you are and just, ex, I guess, accepting that and learning to sort of celebrate it. Mm-hmm, definitely. I think Mad Pride is absolutely about celebration. And I've never heard any self-ascribed mad person say that we're seeking tolerance or even acceptance. <laughs> uh, more like we're here and we are human and we demand that you recognize our humanity. And if people begin to question like, well, you know, I have had some really blue days and like I've had some really anxious days and I've had some really furious days and like what quantity of days do I have to have before I suddenly am no longer normal and who gets to decide that and is that really fair? Um, and then what happens to the people who don't have the agency to decide those things for themselves? Uh, I mean, children's, I think, a common example um, where those decisions are often made for them about their body-mind. Like, that's just, she was just such an unhappy child, so we took her to a therapist, that kind of narrative. And then for people who are reluctant to identify in any way with that, like, cluster of unwellness, we'll say, um, there's, there's things that we can all be doing, such as consciousness about our language. And in the same way, like I consider this a cuss word, so I won't say the R word. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and in the 90s, I'm dating myself here, but that was like, if you were riding the bus in the 90s, then somebody was calling somebody else the R word. That was just the way it was. Mm -hmm. um, it was a really it was just a really common way to disparage someone at the time. And it has sort of gone out of fashion. Like it is no longer considered PC to just casually drop that word any old time we want. You will probably get a dirty look if you're around quote unquote progressive people. Um, and in the same way, I hope that we will build a consciousness around other words that have to do with madness, mental illness, neurodivergence, disability, such as um, crazy, insane, idiot, dumb, lame. That's another one that's like quickly like coming to the point where it stings my ears. So there's just these words that we use all the time when we want to put somebody or something down. And they are immediately associated with disability and madness and so forth. And I think that just reiterates the lesser status that crazy people, mentally ill people, disabled people have in our culture. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think it gets to the point that you were making earlier where it's the sort of the closer you look at that line between illness and wellness, the harder it is to actually recognize and define the idea also that how many days, you know, does it take to qualify as um, mad? You know, that's... Um, it's difficult to define even, yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, I wanna know, how, how did you become interested in MAD studies or how did you, how, how has your educational career up to this point le led you 
to or lead you to uh, pursuing a PhD at Oregon State University? So I decided some years ago that I was going to come out as genderqueer and people were going to use my pronouns and that and I was going to be proud about that right and um and that's you know whatever (laughs) lots of people in my life still really struggle with that and that's okay I'm not going to like correct the grocery store clerk or something um and parallel to that I was certainly I have been up until very recently very closeted as a crazy person and like why would I out myself as that when on purpose when I do it often unintentionally way too often like it has invited all kinds of harm and violence into my life when I was I like to say when I'm not in control of my mutant powers (laughs) (laughs) um I don't know if anybody watches Jessica Jones but I'm like the suicidal and not homicidal version of her mother (laughs) that's like such a specific nerd reference I'm sorry Um, that's on my to watch list oh it's so good well season two is bearable anyway I digress (laughs) so um deciding to come to Oregon State was when I was applying to PhD programs I had experienced a lot of stigma in my MA program even from the very people who were writing my letters of recommendation one of them, this was actually how I learned about quick side story, uh, how I learned that there was such a thing as quote unquote mad studies by that term was I was at a huge conference in my field. I happened to be walking uh, in the book fair with a faculty member and I saw this anthology, this big fat anthology from Canada called Mad Matters. And it was like, an introduction to Canadian mad studies or something to that effect. And I was like, what? (laughs) Mad studies? That's me. That's me. These are my people. Whatever that means. (laughs) And I picked up the book and I was like, I'm just going to borrow this for two seconds. I'm not stealing it. And I ran over to my teacher and I was like, look at this. And she took one look at it and she rolled her eyes so hard. (laughs) (laughs) And I was crushed and she left. And I was in that moment, I was like this, you know, this is not my place and these are not the people who will accept me for who I am, but it exists. It is somewhere and I'm going to find it. And lo and behold, like, because there are crazy people everywhere, it did so happen that there was a faculty member in a completely different college at my MA program school um, that I, I now consider him a mad elder. And wow, there's not very many of them. We don't live very long. Um, And (laughs) yeah, I'm kind of a morbid sense of humor. I should tone that down. (laughs) Um, and so when I was writing my letters, um, you know, my letters of intent and so forth to, for PhD programs, I put it right in there. Like I am crazy and I want to study crazy things. And Oregon state was like, we want you, we want you. And I was like, okay, these are some weirdos here. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Not really sort of, I love my faculty. They're really stellar and brilliant and um even those who don't necessarily like affiliate themselves in an academic sense with disability studies or mad studies um are incredibly supportive of the work that we're doing and of students who 
find themselves in those positionalities or identify themselves those ways. And especially like within my cohort and amongst my peers, I've found not just support, but like amazing collaboration and um, challenges to the way that I think and introductions to new stories and new narratives that push back on things that I was raised with. It involves a lot of unpacking. I'm not gonna lie, sometimes it's traumatic. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it's been a really supportive and wonderful experience. And I feel incredibly lucky to be here. I didn't think I was going to give some glowing review of Oregon State, honestly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, just to, to fill in the fill in kind of like the chronological mm-hmm. um, trajectory of your life. That's such a hard thing to do, I realize. <laughs> yeah. um, but so you're at a conference and you find this, uh, wow, mad studies. Somebody's using this term to encapsulate or to like describe um, this that I have experience with. I'm so excited, shot down by someone that you, you know, that you uh, look up to, perhaps. Um, But then did you look deeper into what MAD Studies is and kind of find out, hey, this does exist and this is where I want to be and there's a lot of room for exploration here? And then you just like kind of ran with it and said the person or the school that is going to accept me for who I am is where I'm going to go. And then was it like kind of a test, like putting that into your letter and thinking, you know, they're, they're going to take it or leave it. And then you find yourself here at Oregon State. Pleased by that? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, in fact, when I came for my visit, I reiterated that. I was like, well, just in case, you know, we all have faculty we write these 15 page papers and then they don't read it and then they're like here's a grade but you know they didn't read it and so I was like well maybe they didn't read my letter that's absurd (laughs) of course they read everybody's letters they won't let you in otherwise (laughs) I was like maybe they didn't read it and I'm gonna reiterate this like no I'm mad I mean mad like crazy mad like this and that not just angry and this was a face-to-face interaction and on multiple occasions I've had faculty reiterate their support around and not in a paternalistic or patronizing way as is often the case uh you know if you're visiting a therapist perhaps um like oh poor you that you have this thing that's wrong with you but in a way that recognized my pride and um even shared in it uh yeah and so I think that was like a really both hard and necessary decision for me when I was like, well, I've done this thing around my gender and I don't know why this feels so much harder and more dangerous, but I feel like I need to do it or I am going to keep living with this. And so many other people I know, like especially experiences from like my childhood and my young adult years, uh, seeing really violent things happen to people as a result of what I would now recognize as madness, mental illness, uh, neurodivergence, and just the possibilities that there are some ways I could help intervene on that, even if it starts with intervening on the problematic aspects of this field called mad studies. So that kind of takes us to the next step, which is sort of future, looking to the future. So you're early in your program relatively, but do you have any ideas of what you will want to pursue after grad school here at OSU? 
So I feel like I'm a bit of a stereotype in this way because I'm sure a lot of people are like, I want to be a tenure track professor and I want to do research. And um, I'm crazy, but I am also a bit mediocre. <laughs> and so I don't see myself as some like Foucault or Judith Butler or Jasper Pouar or what have you that's going to be this rock star in my field and automatically guarantee myself one of those positions. But I do hope that whatever I do will involve teaching. Um, bell hooks and Paulo Freire and many other uh, super famous teachers and uh, pedagogists talk about the power of teaching and not just in like shaping minds, so to speak, but in a mutual like breakage of consciousness or recreation of consciousness or co-construction of consciousness. There's many ways to think about it. And so I find teaching really exciting and I, lo I also love research, but wherever I end up going, I hope that it involves like a co-generative teaching environment. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. So by co-constructive, you mean sort of it's a teaching, it's a learning experience for the instructor as well. Yeah, okay. definitely. Mm -hmm. And like, which is um, already something that I've encountered, like both on this continent and on others that students of all kinds and all ages are often frightened into silence by the power dynamic that so many teaching systems impose especially really like westernized ones like the ones that Freire was talking about like the banking model of education where the teacher opens the child's head and pours the knowledge in and they're good to go <laughs> um i don't i really hope that's not where the like future of knowledge production lies on this continent um sort of more transactional in a sense it sounds like definitely reciprocal yeah i hope it is reciprocal mm -hmm. yeah yeah interesting okay well we're getting down to the end of our time unfortunately but first uh i do want to thank you for coming on the show and i'm really interested to see kind of where your ideas lead you in your journey and getting this phd and kind of like what idea what new ideas come up and so I'd encourage you to come on the show again when you have it like maybe a little bit further further ahead where you kind of have maybe some stuff written or you've tried out some <laughs> ideas for more conferences or something like that. But awesome. That'd be great. <laughs> we do uh, we do um, ask two traditions or keep the tr two traditions on inspiration dissemination. And the first tradition is to ask you for your advice. And <laughs> so I will ask you. Um, what is your advice and who are you aiming? Who's the audience of your advice? Ooh. Um, yeah, so I've been, th I've been thinking a lot about grad students lately, um, in particular, coming back to school and being like, oh, these are the people that I will be saturated with again. Yep. And which is, you know, has its pros and cons. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so I guess this would be for my, f my peers, my gr fellow grad students. Um, I've been thinking about a concept from Gloria Anzaldúa that she calls spiritual activism. And I hope that we, I guess my advice would be that we think of the work that we're doing here, be it research and or teaching, um, working on projects as a form of spiritual activism, which is 
absolutely connected to med studies and disability studies, but I guess we don't have time to talk about that. So that would be my advice. Okay. So I'm curious, just briefly, um, the idea of spiritual activism, can you delve into that a little bit? Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I think the way that maybe normatively positioned people would read Anzal Dua, they, the first thing they might think is like, this is crazy. Like, what is she talking about? Um, which is why I was immediately attracted to it. Um, but imagining activism is not something that just takes place in the material realm, but that extends into our spiritual life is really important. So why there we're doing uh, plant biology or chemistry or so forth, that these things also have spiritual aspects, which involve us all being connected to each other as living things. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. And our last tradition is to ask for an outro. So we're going to play a song of your request. Uh, and can you tell us a little bit why, about why uh, why you chose the song <laughs> that you chose? Oh, yeah. Um, it's a, from a movie called K-Pax. Um, and I would critique that if we had time. And it's a movie about a crazy person that was near and dear to my heart for a long time. So I, and this song was also like really potent to me at a period of time that I was particularly out of my mind. <laughs> so that's why. Okay. Well, thanks again for sharing all this with us. And Thank we you. do hope that you come on, on the show again. Thanks. <laughs> 